From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. But you could look at food safety as being more about long-term health impacts, so diet-related disease or the kind of cumulative impacts over a period of years or a lifetime of eating certain things. This week on our show, a conversation with Emily Broadlieb of the Harvard Food Law and Policy Clinic. She argues that our narrowly focused food safety regulations are failing to address the most important aspects of our food system. We talk about what it might look like to include worker safety, environmental impacts, and long-term health and nutrition when considering the safety of our food. Stay tuned for this important discussion, plus food and farming updates from Harvest Public Media. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Renee Reed has some food and farming reports for us. Hi, Renee. Hi, Kate. Farmers in the U.S. and other countries might want to plant more crops to offset losses from Russia and Ukraine. That's the suggestion of one expert who says Russia's invasion of Ukraine is putting global food security at risk. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports. Ukraine is one of the world's breadbaskets. Along with Russia, it provides nearly 30% of the world's wheat and nearly 20% of the world's corn. The war in Ukraine will likely drastically decrease those exports, which could lead to increased food insecurity and even famine in some low-income nations. Megan Konar researches global supply chains at the University of Illinois. It's just very concerning to think that War could bring food insecurity or food could be used as a weapon of war in the 21st century. So I hope it doesn't come to that. She says the war is also further inflating fertilizer prices, which could exacerbate the problem. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. New research shows grocery stores sold a lot more plant-based meat alternatives during the pandemic, but that didn't slow the growth in conventional meat sales. The study from the University of Kentucky finds plant-based meat alternative sales doubled worldwide over the past two years without a corresponding decrease in beef or pork sales. Todd Boyman is the CEO of Hungry Planet, a St. Louis-based meat alternative company. He says the numbers are neither surprising nor discouraging. Conventional meat sales will price completely flatline and then maybe decrease a little bit as plant-based meats continue to not only get better, but to cover more ranges of options. Boyman says the plant-based meat alternative industry is just getting started. He sees the increasing sales as a sign things are going in the right direction. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin and Jonathan All for those updates. For Earth Eats, I'm Renee Reed. lifetime, I have never doubted the safety of the food I purchase in the store. When I select a package of spaghetti from the shelf, I feel confident that it has been produced in a facility that is inspected by the proper government agencies 
and that the product has passed a rigorous set of standards before it makes it to my grocery cart. Aside from the occasional romaine lettuce recall due to possible E. coli contamination, we don't have a lot of food safety concerns here in the U.S. In fact, I wonder if we sometimes take for granted the security that government regulation has brought to our everyday lives. We expect roadways to be functional, child car seats to protect our little ones, and we expect that the food we purchase will not poison us. Meeting those expectations rests on the consistency and the strength of our regulatory agencies. My guest today is asking important questions about food safety regulation in the U.S. She brings a broader, more holistic understanding of what should be included when we talk about the safety and the long-term effects of the food we eat. I'm Emily Broadleib. I'm a clinical professor of law at Harvard Law School, and I direct the Food Law and Policy Clinic, which is sort of a service learning and uh, educational program for law students. Yeah, I wanted to just start with your larger view of food safety and regulation in law and how it differs from sort of the typical approach to, or tradition, you know, how we've been approaching food safety in the past. A lot of my writing and research has been about the fact that we define food safety really narrowly. And it's interesting because it's not that in law, you know, we've necessarily said food safety only means foodborne illness, but that's essentially what we really regulate. And what, when you say to someone something about food safety, that's what people really think about. They think, If I eat this food today, am I going to be in the hospital tomorrow or the day after? But you could look at food safety as being more about long-term health impacts, so diet-related disease or the kind of cumulative impacts over a period of years or a lifetime of eating certain things. And it's certainly something we care about, but it's not nearly as regulated. We don't, you know, invest nearly as much funds and resources proportionally into that. And we don't really call that food safety. And then kind of going one step even broader to that is like the cradle to grave health impacts of food production. Um, so that would include things like the health impacts on workers, on farm workers, and, and, and on uh, households living near food production, the impacts on water supplies and you know how that impacts even families downstream, and then the impacts of food waste. So we, we sort of say, you know, by not calling all of those things food safety, we leave them out of the primary regulation we're doing. And even when the Food and Drug Administration or the U.S. Department of Agriculture is regulating food safety, it's not doing a good job of balancing the regulations it's putting in place with sort of the where the larger you know disease burden and costs really sit on society. So is it true that in a way in terms of the food safety costs or the you know how many people actually become ill from these foodborne illnesses like E. coli or salmonella or something, is, is that just a smaller percentage of the kind of risks that we face w- with food? The mortality rate from foodborne illness in the U.S. hovers around 3,000 per year, which, again, I mean, none of this is to argue that our food shouldn't be safe. But, you know, then if you look at mortality from diabetes, it's like 80,000 a year, which, again, is it's mostly type 2 diabetes. It's 
primarily diet-related, diet-caused, diet-exacerbated, and then heart disease is even beyond that. It's about 630,000 per year. And those are actually all pre-COVID rates. And I think one thing we've seen as well in this pandemic, and it's true of other infectious diseases too, is that when we have underlying high rates of chronic illness, those individuals are, are even more susceptible to COVID, to flu, you know, to other infectious diseases as well. So I think the cost when looked at in terms of mortality is way higher of these other illnesses that we don't regulate with quite the same level of government c- control. And then if you pull in, like you were talking about worker safety in food production, I mean, meatpacking plants are one of the most dangerous places to work. And that's never taken into consideration. And it's like, it's like the people producing the food aren't the people eating the food, but it's all people. and <laughs> All of our safety should count. I was actually just looking at this data point um, today. So there was a study that came out that, that looked at the jobs across the U.S. with the highest relative excess COVID risk of mortality. And food and agriculture was by far the highest above transportation and logistics, other manufacturing, above even health and emergency workers. People don't really realize that. And, you know, at least in the past year, I, I think that more attention was shown on the, the plight of workers kind of throughout the food supply in, you know, meat and poultry slaughter and processing. But we, we still haven't really, you know, I think come to grips with like, it's not just the COVID risk, but also there's lots of like musculoskeletal, um, you know, injuries and uh, repetitive motion injuries and illness from chemicals that are like applied sometimes to meats and things like that. I mean, it's, we really undervalue the human health costs of, of workers across food supply. And that's true in the farm, you know, farms and fields too. If we're investing all of this time and energy and money in, you know, looking at food safety only through this very narrow lens, it seems like we're just missing like the whole boat, which is how can we make the food supply safer along all aspects of the way and for the for the entire lifespan. For example, not regulating uh, like environmental impacts, let's say of meat production causes then actually contamination often of like romaine lettuce where we've had a lot of E. coli contamination and things like that. So it's sort of you know, we're not regulating for something that we call an environmental hazard, which is manure runoff and things like that. But then it actually ex- exacerbating the very food safety issues that we are trying to invest in. Um, so I think that there's a lot of like unintended consequences also of the ways that we're regulating. We're not really looking at it as a trade-off between what is most important for human health in the long term, but, you know, I would argue we should be. So you're thinking about even consolidation and larger farms versus if smaller farms can't survive in these in these markets then that's actually impacting food safety there's some data on just the you know increased risk food safety risks themselves of, of kind of consolidation but i think even a lot of the the issues we've talked about are you know, exacerbated by larger production facilities so like certainly you know the worker issues that we've talked about Uh, And I think we saw as well during the past year and a half that having consolidation in in meat and poultry and other food processing led to a huge 
supply chain challenges when when plants needed to shut down. And so I think, again, there's at least like growing awareness of the fact that the direction we've gone, which has been towards having high barriers to entry in terms of food safety regulations, coupled with, you know, a lot of incentives to really grow, grow, grow and consolidate have reduced the resilience of the system that we rely on. My guest is Emily Broadleib, director of the Harvard Law School's Food and Law Policy Clinic. After a short break, we'll return to our conversation. Emily reflects on how we ended up in this limited approach to food safety, and we talk more about what the pandemic has brought to light about our food systems. Stay with us. Young here. This is Earth Eats. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Emily Broadleib. She's the director of Harvard Law School's Food Law and Policy Clinic. Her work investigates how U.S. law intersects with food production, and she takes a holistic systems approach, one that includes environmental impacts, worker safety, immigration, and long-term health concerns. Let's return to our conversation. Why do you think that our understanding of food safety has been so narrowly focused for all this time on just like these really short-term illnesses? Yeah, it's, I mean, I scratch my head thinking about this a lot, but I think there's kind of a couple reasons. One is is a sort of like almost behavioral economics, like there's a lot of, of evidence that what people are really afraid of are these like kind of salient events of foods, foodborne illness outbreaks and, and you know, the, the history really across this country of regulation of food safety has been kind of responsive to food safety outbreaks or critiques. Even looking back, our first national food safety laws were a result of, of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which was meant to be about the plight of workers, but everyone read it to be about the safety of the food. And, and you know, everything, even up until the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was enacted in 2011, has been kind of responsive to an outbreak in the food system. So there's, you know, one piece of it, which is this sort of reactive response to things that are, that, that even if the risk is low, that someone would really get sick, the story, the stories get so much attention and, and you know, really freak people out. The other reason I think is that it's easier to regulate food safety for for certain reasons as well. And one of those is that companies actually often are supportive of the food safety regulations, particularly larger companies that are the ones that have political clout. And I think the reason for that is that they are concerned if someone were to get sick, they think they would you know, be sued, they would wind up in court, and they'd rather have these regulations that they can follow and then say to a court, look, you know, we weren't negligent. We followed all of the regulations we were supposed to follow. By contrast, when you look at things like diet-related disease or kind of cumulative long-term health impacts or even the environmental impacts, 
they're much more diffuse. It's much more difficult to point the finger back at an individual company and say that, you know, that you're going to sue them or hold them accountable for those harms. And so I think that there's sort of, if you think about like a political economy side of like, who is helping make the decisions and drive policy. And, you know, again, I look back at the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was our most recent major food safety law. And a lot of the largest trade organizations and food businesses were supportive of the law. For many of them, it was like enshrining things they were already doing. So they were like, great, put this law in place. We're already, you know, doing these food safety steps. But for them to actually have to reformulate products or, you know, holistically change their supply chain to reduce air and water pollution would be a a huge cost to them. And I think there's no, you know, right now they're not being held accountable. Do you also think just that it's, I think you were kind of hinting at this, that, you know, it's also just kind of harder to follow or measure or say, these people have diabetes because of, you know, you can point at some particular food product. You can't quite do that in the way you can of someone getting poisoned. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's, and in fact, there's only been like very few court cases that have tried to sue a company for, you know, either like diabetes or obesity or, or things like that. And it's been really, really difficult. Like the main one was a court case from the early 2000s from um, in New York called the Pelman case. And basically it was, you know, some families suing McDonald's for diet related diseases of their children. And it there are pro- a lot of issues with the litigation, but one big one is just how difficult it would be to prove causation that that food product was the cause of the harms that they suffered because it was you know unless you can show that they were eating only that all day every day it would be really difficult to say that that was itself the cause and i think that that also leads to why it's really difficult to regulate and i think on the part of both policymakers there's this uncertainty about what is the you know, where should we focus energy? But I think also on the part of companies sort of saying, you being able to say that, that there's so many factors, we're not the, you know, the primary one and pointing the fingers here, there and everywhere. And I, and I think, you know, I, I do think it's important to, to note that policymakers aren't magicians. You know, they can't figure out the answer to everything. But I think my argument would be that we, first of all, there's some, things in the food supply that we know we should and can regulate those better. But I think also when we're when we are regulating food safety if we're not looking at how those regulations impact these broader harms or ills or diseases then you know we're exacerbating them. We're not actually contributing to a better overall health. So there's ways to at least be conscious of all of those broader issues when we're regulating in the places where we do regulate. Do you think that the approach of informing consumers is is good enough? Making it clear on labeling or like, you know, now at um, restaurants that you have to have a calorie count next to each dish um, or each food. Is that the kind of regulation that you think would make a difference? Or do you think it's more at the like production level? Like, should we even be, should companies even be allowed to produce certain kinds of foods? 
FDA's overall budget, 98% of their budget on food goes to food safety and only 2% goes to nutrition. And then you look at like what they do on food safety. They inspect plants. They like have certain requirements. There's practices that need to be followed. And on nutrition, it's all like labeling and awareness. And so I do think that that there's a difference in scale. There's a difference in kind of, you know, in terms of the tools we're using. In some cases, you know, labeling and information can be a start. I think it's even better when that leads to product reformulation on the part of industry, because that's where you're seeing the impact. But I don't think it's enough. So you mean if people stop choosing a product because they're so disturbed by the calorie count or whatever, then they're like, then the company's like, all right, maybe we need to make this a little bit healthier to appeal to people. Yeah, or I would say even, for example, where there's like in New York City where there's a sodium warning label. So on food menu items where the sodium level of that item is greater than the daily um, recommended sodium consumption, they have to have a warning label. So even before it gets in front of consumers and they're making different choices, there's a push on, there's a nudge on the company to you know say, we don't want to have that negative you know symbol. So, and, and there's no reason to have the amount of sodium that we have in this product. It's gratuitous. So they are actually choosing to reduce in order to avoid that. The same thing we see often with things like um, in, in, you know, some um, countries have done taxes on sugar that, that, that are based on the, um, like they're tiered taxing based on the amount of sugar in, let's say like a, a beverage and companies will reduce sugar to be able to get into a lower tax bracket. And same thing with calorie labeling too. I mean, if a company knows that they're gonna need to put the calorie labels on everything, there's an incentive for them to think a little bit more about you know, other ways to reduce this. I think I'm a little cynical just about calorie labeling in general. I think that there's not that great evidence that calories are really the salient piece of information. And it's hard because we've now invested a lot of energy in like labeling of this piece of information that I think is probably not the one, the thing that people should look at most. It's, it's more, it is sugar level. I think sugar is, you know, a huge issue. We have a huge project where we've been looking, we've been providing resources and support to state and local government and coalitions on policies to reduce sugar consumption. So I think like making that more front and center, the amount of sugar in products. Sodium is another big one. And again, I mentioned the New York example, but you know, I think some of those informational things do have an impact. And again, if they lead to changes on the part of companies. Um, but I think also there's, at the federal level, we have like national voluntary reduction guidelines for sodium, you know, making those things mandatory, sort of saying we know that the amount of sodium in use is is detrimental. And I think the issue with sodium, for example, is it's hard if one company's reducing because people like have a taste, like they have a taste expectation. So, you know, bringing that down across the board can, can both benefit health, but also benefit the companies that are trying to kind of make a reduction there. So I think we should use more prescriptive tools in some cases for um, ingredients in the food supply that are overused and that are harmful. Also, just thinking about the calories thing that, you know, what if there was some kind of way to, to inform consumers about, 
you know, how nutrient dense is this? Is it just empty calories or is this going to fuel you for the day? Like we all need calories, like, you know, but that kind of information seems uh, like it would be useful. And I know that there, there was a time when like, if you just have oat anywhere in your ingredients then you can say it's heart healthy or whatever, you know, which is ridiculous and not what I'm talking about, but but just like maybe more emphasizing the good ingredients that are in something. Again, going back to like where we're investing resources and what we're prioritizing, FDA doesn't have enough resources to even enforce the labeling rules that are out there. So like the number one thing in labeling is labels shouldn't be false or misleading. And like, if you go into any grocery store right now, especially in the center aisles, like 85% of the products there are either have gone to the, you know, past that threshold, they're really putting things on there that are false, or they're really like using this, these gray areas to put information on products that shouldn't be there. And there's, we don't have any pre-market review of labels for products that FDA reviews. We do have them for meat um, and poultry that, that is reviewed by USDA. So there's no pre-market review. There's thousands of new products entering the market every year. And again, if we think that nutrition and diet-related disease are priorities, we would invest more money in not only the regulation of those, but also the enforcement of those regulations by FDA. talk more about the pandemic and about COVID-19 and how it has brought so many of the flaws in our food system to light and really, I think, made consumers more aware of the conditions in a meatpacking plant. And uh, maybe it's just because I'm in food media, but it seems to me like there's there, especially in the early days, there was a lot of, of discussion about that because they were trying to figure out how you could do social distancing, for instance, in a meatpacking plant and how impossible that was. And so people are kind of looking inside and seeing what the plant might look like. The way that I look at it, there's like sort of four big aspects of issues that COVID impacted in the food system. So I think one was really workers and we've talked a little bit about that, but I think suddenly food businesses were declared essential, which made all of the workers essential. Otherwise they're often treated as disposable. Even in the earliest days when there was like very little knowledge about what was needed to keep people safe, or even if there was knowledge, there wasn't really enforcement on the part of government that businesses needed to take those steps to keep workers safe. And even when you look at like the the number of illnesses and deaths in, in meat and poultry slaughter and processing, it took until September, six months later, before OSHA issued any citations to any plants. So, you know, clearly, you know, you're not deterring anyone from bad behavior, not forcing them to take the steps that they were able to take by not doing anything for six months. And even then it was like $10,000, $13,000 of fines for, you know, many thousands of illnesses and hundreds of deaths. I think food security, which we haven't really talked about that aspect as well, but in the end of 2019, we saw the lowest food insecurity rates in the U.S. that we've had since the Great Recession. 
And then early in the pandemic, there were estimates that food insecurity was like 25%. So it went from 10% to 25%. And I would say on that front, it took a little while, but I think we have had a really robust government response. And what I think I would love to see now is make some of the things permanent. Like, you know, we already, we know that you know, supporting people who are in need of food reduces food insecurity, keeps people healthy. And then I would say farmers, a lot of farmers, like their markets just dried up. And farmers always are subject to a lot of risk. I mean, it's a a really tough profession. There's weather risk, there's market risk. I mean, you know, you name it you know, particularly for producers who sold to anything in like food service, complete market closures, fairly significant inability on the part of our food chain to quickly pivot those to retail or other places. And then I I think the other big thing that was related to that was food waste, which I spent a lot of time working on. It's estimated that we waste 30 to 40% of our food prior to COVID. And I think everyone, you know, saw on full display these like, I have like a picture that I use in slideshows a lot of like, just like a field of onions, like as far as the eye can see that were left to rot. And I think dairy was a really good example. Just, it was like at 1.5% of the supply of dairy was being wasted every day because there was nowhere for it to go. Again, all of these are issues outside of COVID, but, you know, all of them were worsened. And for the first time, a lot of just average Americans started to see evidence of these issues. Let me say a little more about food waste, because I think it's something I work on a lot. And I think it's, you know, people often ask, like, why, you know, why the focus? Why spend so much resources on it? And it's it's to me sort of a microcosm for all of these other issues in the food supply. So like, for example, we know that the production of food is a big emitter of greenhouse gases. And then if we're overproducing to account for all the food we waste, we're increasing those emissions. We know that waters, I'm sorry, that the food production uses a lot of water. And there's data that show that like 20% of our water, maybe 25% of our water supply goes to water crops that we essentially just throw away because they're part of the food waste. And then food itself, when it's in the landfill, is a huge emitter of methane. Um, So the the UN has said that food waste causes about 8 to 10% of all global greenhouse gas emissions, which makes it like a worthy target. This is the planet that we all live and use the water from and breathe the air from. So, you know, again, anything that's contributing to, to additional environmental degradation is bad for human health. But also a lot of food waste is caused because of these unreasonable or, or um, unclear food safety rules. If we're not looking at food waste as a primary target, there's a lot of ways that we might say any food that like might possibly have been contaminated in any way should be thrown away. And, you know, again, I don't want to be accused of saying that we shouldn't be eating healthy food or safe food, but there's a lot of cases where, you know, food that's totally safe and edible is thrown away. Um, As one small example, or not even small, one large example, I guess, date labels on foods often are, are, you know, intended to be indicators of taste and freshness, but the large majority of people believe that they're a safety date. And even a lot of regulators in states 
require that food be thrown away after that date, even if it's things like canned goods or pasta or things that, you know, you could probably eat two years later, five years later, and would be totally fine. Yeah, I think when when most people think about food waste, they think about that, the the labels, and then they also think about foods being wasted while people are going hungry. And I, I know that that equation isn't really that simple and straightforward. <laughs> but I think the things that you're talking about, just sort of these broader issues of the way food is produced and the greenhouse gases effects of that, it just makes a lot of sense. It makes it really clear. There was actually an interesting court decision like two years ago from a, a, a provincial court in Pakistan that we were kind of involved in that they found that the right to food, which they recognize we in the U.S. do not, but they found that the right to food actually includes the right for food not to be wasted and that there was a duty on government to find ways to ensure that that surplus, you know, safe food was not wasted because it was reaching everybody's right to food to have all of that food thrown away. And I think it's like an interesting framing when you think about that, you know, we all should have a right to that food, especially those who are otherwise kind of, you know, in need. And yet I don't think we've really taken seriously the the need to have a, a real commitment to make sure that all of the food that can be eaten gets to someone in need. When I spoke with Emily Broadleap, the Biden administration had just announced that they were working with the Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, to develop a rule for employers to require workers to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. That federal vaccine mandate was struck down by the Supreme Court in January of 2022. But at the time of the interview, I wanted to hear her thoughts on that approach. Does that make sense to you as a as an OSHA requirement mandating that a that a company um, have all of its workers vaccinated? It's a good question. So I should say it's slightly beyond my you know in terms of just the legal authority question beyond what I really look at. But I do think there's some good uh, like legal precedent around doing you know doing things like this and having kind of. Um, vaccine requirements. And it is a worker safety issue. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's not just a worker safety issue. I mean, this is coming up in schools right now and things where children are saying or parents are saying, can we have a mask mandate? Because I understand that it, people think it's personal choice, but my child and my family can't be safe when they're going in. So if you kind of look at it through this lens of those who are trying to come in every day and and be safe and not get infected or or infect their families. I think in particular, when we think about like meat and poultry and processing and things like that, where people are close together, and even if they've attempted to put up some barriers, you know, there's nothing that substitutes for uh, making sure people are vaccinated so that we can reduce the spread. I mean, to me, it just feels almost straightforward. It's like, uh, what is the cause of worker injury and death in our company? Oh, it's this disease. Okay, what can we do to mitigate it? Here are the things, masking, distancing, vaccination when available. And it just it, it's just like, it's like your three compartment sink in a kitchen, you know, <laughs> like it's just, it's, here's the, the, 
the guidelines that are in place. But, you know, just because it's gotten so politicized, no one can look at it outside of all of these other issues. I fully support having vaccine mandates. At my institution, we have a vaccine mandate. We also right now have a mask mandate because we're seeing some spread and a lot of us, like present party included, have unvaccinated people in our homes, like my children. I think the the biggest question is gonna be ultimately, like it is a, a novel way to use OSHA. And I think it is support, there is like legal support for doing it, but it will be interesting to see how the courts look at it. And I, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's, you know, the, the political side of it has really taken over any of the rational debate over this, you know, scientific, you know, people use medications for so many, for so many things. And it seems like there's just really good data that this works and that it's a smart thing to do. My guest is Emily Broadlieb, director of the Food Law and Policy Clinic at Harvard Law School. After a short break, we'll hear more from her about what she envisions and proposes for the U.S. food regulatory agencies for making them more efficient and effective, as well as more comprehensive in terms of long-term health. Stay with us. This is Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Let's return to my conversation with Emily Broadlieb of the Harvard Food Law and Policy Clinic. You have talked about some proposals for reorganizing some of the, because obviously this is a much larger, like you were just talking about how OSHA can't even really enforce the laws that we do have. So what are some of your thoughts about reorganizing kind of the the layers of federal agencies to work more efficiently and, and effectively to address these issues of health? One proposal that I've spent a lot of time on would be for the U.S. to create a national food strategy. I do a lot of work on this with a colleague, Laurie Bay Renovan at Vermont Law School. One of the things we did was we did a, a study of all of our peer countries that have created something like this. And in many cases, they, the, the impetus was really that similar to the U.S., there are a lot of different, it's not just that there's different issues in the food system, but there are a lot of different uh, regulatory authorities. So in the U.S., we've, we've talked a little bit about FDA and USDA, not so much about the Environmental Protection Agency, which also plays a role, but there's actually more than 15 different federal agencies that have a role in, in food safety alone. And so it's really tricky to align those regulations for the greatest sort of end goals without really having a plan in place that says, here are what our goals are with regard to the food supply. Here are the places where we know every day we're making trade-offs between policies where we're 
choosing narrow food safety over long-term health and kind of needing to really interrogate that and figure out if that meets our our longer-term goals. So we looked at, I think, national food strategies in six other countries. And then we looked actually in the U.S. at national strategies that we have here on a range of other topics. Like this is a type of thing we do for other issues. We just haven't chosen to do it for food. In looking at some of the best practices from different countries, one big aspect is really coordination across those agencies. So having regular interagency working group input from the public. I think many of our, um, especially like members of Congress and even agency folks don't have a background in food production necessarily. And there's a real, it's really important to have opportunities for input from different stakeholders and in setting goals and seeing how we're meeting those. And then and then really putting something down in writing that could even just be a list of like, here are the five primary goals we're attempting to achieve in the food system so that we can measure different uh, regulations and different laws against how they make it more or less likely that we're going to achieve those goals rather than being totally haphazard and like on one hand, you know, you know, restricting food safety on farms. And then on the other saying, we don't have enough produce, so we can't meet the dietary guidelines. And then on the other, in the farm bill, supporting farms that produce things that aren't the things we recommend. I mean, there's a lot of ways that our laws are just inherently at odds with one another because there hasn't been any coordinating mechanism. Representative Jim McGovern has been calling for a White House conference on food and nutrition which I think is a big piece of getting all the players together and saying, what do we need to do? How do we need to get there? Um, Jose Andreas was calling for a White House food czar, which is something we look at in this report, that that's a way often that we create high-level strategies is by appointing like a so-called czar or you know lead figure to really like take the lead on an issue and coordinate. There's been articles calling for like a, a U.S. Food Policy Council, which is actually a tool that Canada used when they created their national food strategy just two years ago, is that they created a national food policy council to um, continue to advise government on how it's meeting the goals that were laid out in the strategy. So this is a tool that we know how to use. We've used it elsewhere and our peer countries are using it. And it seems like, you know, food is so important and foundational that I don't know how we're going to really solve these issues without investing and, and, you know, making a plan and getting all the forces moving in that direction. Yeah. And do you really see that COVID has brought so many things to light that maybe it's opening up a window for some of this? That is my hope. I mean, you know, I, I commend the federal government for really seeing the issue and put, investing a lot of money in particular, like, you know, really like increasing SNAP benefits and increasing school meals and they're throwing a lot of money at it, but what I don't see is a lot of this discussion of like the long, you know, how we're going to do this in the long term. And so I think that's like the the question right now is it we have and and even right now USDA has a lot of money that they have left from the last few stimulus bills, and they're figuring out ways to spend it and they're investing in good things, but there's not a lot of discussion about the long term, um, and that's. But I hope we'll come out of it, but I'm not confident that it will. We'll see. Right. So like if there were some kind of strategic planning 
process in place, then there would be that that money could go to really good use. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I found it encouraging to see that SNAP benefits were increasing. And um, because to me, that's so much better than sending food to food banks, because I just feel like people being able to purchase their own food at grocery stores is always better than getting in line at a food bank. But I also know that we're not at the place to (laughs) eliminate that kind of help as well. But yeah. No matter what we do, there's always going to be surplus edible food. And there's no reason we should throw that away instead of getting it to people. But it's not a a long-term solution. It isn't, you know, it's a Band-Aid. And the best thing we can do is make sure people can purchase food. I really support um, having universal free meals in schools for the long term. I mean, there's just so much evidence of what the benefits would be for that, for for children and families. And just um, so I know there's been a push on that. I think, yeah, like increasing the SNAP benefits and now increasing the, the thrifty food plan, which will, you know, result in a longer term increase, which is really amazing. I just hope we can pull together more of this long-term vision and and start putting in place the policies to get there. Well, that might be a good place to end since we've uh, run out of time, but I appreciate so much having this conversation. It's, uh, thank you. Yeah, it's great. I've been speaking with Emily Broadlieb, director of the Food Law and Policy Clinic at Harvard Law School. You can find links to her work on our website, eartheats.org. edging north into the Midwest. Global warming and dwindling water supply are part of the reason for cotton's further expansion into states like Kansas. David Kondos of the Kansas News Service reports from Moscow, Kansas, on what might set the stage to make southwest Kansas cotton country. At the Northwest Cotton Growers Co-op in Moscow, Michael Cutchins prize open a small door on the side of a giant metal box. Inside, sunlight glistens off hundreds of spikes. So all them spike cylinders, we're turning them approximately 1,200 RPMs. And that's what we're using to bust all this up with. For the crops that show up at the only cotton gin in western Kansas, this machine is just the first stop. So after we leave the gin stand, our In the next room, a towering maze of industrial dryers and saw blades tear, heat, and clean the cotton until only white lint remains. Our lint With a snaking network of vacuum-powered tubes whooshing cotton from one machine to the next, the entire ginning process takes less than a minute. When everything's running like it should, it's the pretty part to sit back and watch. Cotton farming in Kansas goes back more than 100 years. But in a state better known for wheat, corn, and milo, it's been a challenge for this fluffy fiber to break into the mainstream. The gin in Moscow is one of only four in the whole state. There are, however, plenty of reasons why cotton may be a good match for a place like southwest Kansas. It could help farmers conserve water, weather drought, adapt to climate change. 
And with the arrival of more infrastructure to help farmers grow it here, Cotton's time in Kansas might finally be now. Cotton is king. But there was a day when few people believed that cotton would have as many uses as it does in today's world. As this 1950s video from General Motors points out, cotton shows up in everything, from diapers to dollar bills. All over the world, the and the U.S. cotton industry now generates more than $20 billion a year. So why hasn't cotton been booming in Kansas all along? One reason is cotton plants need heat. Lots of it. That's why it's traditionally grown south of here. But as climate change brings warmer, drier seasons to Kansas, cotton's growing range could continue inching north. Here's Kansas State University water resource engineer Jonathan Aguilar. You might think about drought as going to be devastating, but actually it may improve the production of cotton here. At his research plots in Garden City, Aguilar has found that watering cotton too much can actually stunt its growth. Other K-State research shows that just one inch of irrigation can give cotton harvests the same type of boost that corn would get from several inches. That's a big deal in southwest Kansas, which depends on disappearing water supplies for irrigation. Still, for farmers who have grown grain for generations, planting this unfamiliar crop can feel like a big risk. And Jennifer Hewitt with the Moscow Cotton Gin doesn't blame them. It's not this, oh, let's throw some seed in the ground. You're going to spend hundreds and thousands of dollars to try something new, <laughs> and it's extremely scary. She plans to hold pop-up meetings around the state this year to help more producers get familiar with cotton. But she knows that changing the culture among farmers here will take time, maybe even generations. It seems like the number one reason we hear is, well, Grandpa says no. <laughs> but as the younger generation kind of takes over and starts realizing they need other options, I think it'll become more and more popular. And that's why we've built what we've built. So this is the module feeder. In the building next door, Hewitt points out the old cotton gin that they retired three years ago. A lot smaller. That's when the co-op spent around $13 million on upgrades. Another co-op just opened a multi-million dollar cotton warehouse near Wichita this past fall. So how big is the impact of all this development on nearby cotton farmers? Uh, absolutely huge. <laughs> Andy Mosier has grown cotton southwest of Moscow for the past five years. When he started, it might have taken five months to get his crop processed, which meant he had to wait five months after harvest to get paid. This season, it only took a couple of weeks. And with cotton prices higher than they've been in a decade, Mosher says the chance he took planting it again this year is paying off. The old guys just want to grow corn or just want to grow milo or grow what they're used to. And young guys, sometimes we got to take some risks. But as the cotton industry gets more established in Kansas, planting it in the future might not be as much of a risk as it used to be. In Moscow, Kansas, I'm David Kondos. Harvest Public Media covers food and farming in the Midwest. Find more from this reporter collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knobloch, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Emily Broadlieb. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.